0: There is a future beyond Shell.
1: It is necessary, overdue, and inevitable. In its place, we are building a clean, fair, and affordable energy democracy. Get ready.
2: Oil and gas major Shell has contributed significantly to the climate crisis. It has long impeded a just transition away from fossil fuels. But what are the pathways to a future beyond Shell? If
0: we are serious about putting a stop to the polluting colonial capitalist company, we need to take a good look at the options. Bankrupting, carbon pricing, suing, nationalizing. What can we achieve with these strategies? Welcome to the Future Beyond Shell podcast in which we explore potential pathways to responsibly dismantle Shell as we know it. We are your hosts, Achina Ramanujam and Marisol Reindl. In this final episode, we consider recent proposals to take the fossil fuel industry into public ownership, specifically into the ownership of a national government. These proposals argue that nationalization towards a managed phase out of the industry allows countries to transition and democratize our energy systems in a just and effective manner It would allow nations to stop production in a centrally planned way. This means we can support workers in the energy sector in training for new jobs as we transition and ensure cleanup happens in marginalized, often racialized communities who have been on the front lines of extraction. It would allow us to restructure control over our energy systems, allowing local communities to make decisions over their lives and neighborhoods. In short, Advocates argue that it would allow us to finally put people
2: before profits. There are a number of pathways to nationalization. In Shell's case, as a British and Dutch-owned company, we will explore where such a nationalization might take place and a few of the mechanisms, as well as various implications of public ownership. Would a nationalization mitigate global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, as outlined in the Paris Agreement? Additionally, many countries currently have oil companies in public ownership, like Petrobras in Brazil or Equinor in Norway, which continue to pump oil out of the ground. So how can we ensure we actually wind shell down once we take it into public ownership? How might nationalization support fossil fuel workers in a transition? We also hope to explore the consequences of nationalization in terms of reproducing global colonial dynamics Or shifting towards global democracy. For example, Nigeria is a former British colony, and its economy is heavily tied to oil production through Shell. This same industry has destroyed watersheds, ecologies, and fisheries, which local communities depend on. Would these communities and others worldwide be considered in a nationalization process that might take place in the UK or the Netherlands? All this and more in this episode. Today, we have two guests joining us. We have Carla Santos-Candir, who is currently the manager of the Climate and Energy Program at the Democracy Collaborative. Carla researches and writes on economic democracy and related policies, and she has been developing the case for public ownership of the fossil fuel industry for a number of years now. We also have with us Olufemi Taiwo, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University. Femi's work draws from anti-colonial scholarship and the Black radical tradition, among other schools of thought, and he has written much on climate disruption and colonialism. He also has a book coming out in December of this year titled Reconsidering Reparations, which focuses on a constructive, future-oriented view of reparations and its links to climate justice. Thank you so much for being here, Carla and Femi.
0: Yeah, also a warm welcome from my side, uh, both Carla and Femi. It's really great to have you on the show today. Mm, To start off the conversation, I think it would be great for our listeners to first learn a little bit about the basics of nationalization. So... Carla, I would like to direct uh, the first question to you. Um, I know that you have written and researched the case for nationalization of the fossil fuel industry, largely in the US context. Can you explain what you mean by taking the fossil fuel industry or a company like Shell into public ownership?
1: Yeah, sure. And I think that's a great uh, question to start off so we can get all the assumptions out of the way. I think when we talk about public ownership, at least in the context of my research, in a nutshell, it just means detach uh, fossil fuel reserves, which is a natural resource and if, should be owned and controlled by the public in the first place, away from private and profit driven interest. I think what we're having right now is because fossil fuel reserves are actually dictating our future as a livable society. Um, The public has no saying because they're in the hands of the private interests. Uh, And when I talk about ownership, it's also important to mention that there's a lot of public ownership without control and decision-making powers. And this is not the type of public ownership we are talking about. We are talking about public ownership that's very attached to control and decision-making powers so we can put the future back into the public hands and the public and guided for the public interest. Um, In a more deeper level, if we were to break down, it also means regaining political will and power to the public. It also means decreasing economic inequality. Uh, It also means providing a pathway from frontline um, people impacted by the transition, the energy transition that we need to go through pretty fast in the next decade. So this is uh, just a lot of the years when you talk about public ownership, but basically just putting our future back into the public hands.
0: Yeah, great. And what I understood from the research that I've done, there are different routes or forms how you can nationalize uh, a corporation. So I would be curious to hear a little bit more. Yeah, if you can take us a little bit through the steps of uh, nationalizing or taking a corporation into public ownerships? And maybe also um, tell us a bit like what your preferred route would be.
1: Yeah, I don't have a preferred route. Um, I do have one that I research the most, Uh, as I I didn't mention, but I do deal with systemic solutions to the climate crisis. And a lot of that is an intersection with politics and economics. A lot of my research had been focused on central banks because they do have a mandate to financial stability. And right now, climate change is a major threat to that mandate. So one of the routes that I've researched the most is just basically central banks having the power, especially in developed countries, um, like United States, Netherlands, uh, is to purchase equity stakes to existing authority of the central banks. And before I think last year. It was a pretty novel idea. The United States were not doing such, especially with corporate bonds. And then that drastic shift when we had a pandemic and a financial crisis attached to it. So basically, the idea is that the Fed could go to the market, especially in the United States, since most of the fossil fuel companies um, in the financial market and pretty much buy stocks. Uh, and having control over the decision-making powers. That might mean for some companies 51%, for others close to 100%, but it's basically just buying equity stakes on those companies. There are many other ways. Historically, uh, in the United States, there's the eminent domain. Basically, the government claims that a private company right now is due for the public good and, be, and pays a reasonable compensation, which is the standard and just acquire and nationalize the company that's been done throughout the century, uh, especially in times of crisis, which is what we have right now. Um, there's basically also a regulatory route that is just end private ownership of fossil fuel companies. Uh, I'm from Brazil in case people didn't notice my accent, but in Brazil, all fossil fuels Reserves and natural resource are owned by the government. There's no private uh, ownership. You can have a lease to extract, but the main right remains with the federal government. Um, And last year, also we add two other potential routes in our research um, and that was really attached to the COVID pandemic. And one is basically claiming for us to condition the federal government to condition bailouts on uh, equity. We were just sick of seeing the government giving money away to fossil fuel companies and it was time to ask something in return. That happened a lot in 2008. Um, there was some companies that were de facto nationalized like AIG and they asked for equity in return. They didn't use their controlling powers but they, the government could if they, they wanted. And also we did have a wave with the price drop uh, last year Going to negative uh, or oil, and there was a lot of small companies that went bankrupt. Uh, so instead of going bankrupt and trying to maximize the profits for creditors, the government could receive receivership or stewardship over the future of the company. So those are other two routes that we we have been proposing. And I think as we move forward, bankruptcy is going to be kind of the low-hanging fruit of how we can actually promote the nationalization of some of these companies and avoid further concentration from big oil and other other companies, or decentralization as is happening in the UK North Sea.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to hear. And I'm curious if you could maybe in a nutshell share with us what for you the main reasoning behind the idea of nationalizing is like what are the core arguments you think that uh, speak in favor of this uh, pathway?
1: Well, one thing that I think that we talk a lot in the climate world is that we need a just transition, right? We need a just transition for workers, we need a just transition for dependent uh, communities, we need a to break through. And now with the Green New Deal, we also tackling something that was very, uh, that was always dependent, which is the social inequality that we have in this in, in this world. And that all circles back to extraction. Um, when we talk about fossil fuels, very clear to see extraction, we are extracting natural resources, but the social inequality that we have across the world and in, U- in the U.S. particular, where I, I work and develop most of my research and policy. Um, We we are extracting uh, race, Um, we are extracting labor, that's all been connected to one industry for many years and is being replicated by other financial sector, political sector and so forth. But when we talk about nationalization in itself, it's just kind of starting to break through that chain of extraction, trying to see what is next for us as a democracy, as a economy, um, trying to see what is next for us for social justice perspective. It's bringing back power to the people and let the people decide what is next for us. I think nationalization has been very attached to models of like high state and socialism of the 70s, that is exactly what we talk about public, ship, public ownership. We're talking about democratic public ownership It's bringing uh, the power uh, back to the people. And I think there's no better sector to start off than the sector that is pushing us to a climate cliff, uh, climate crisis that is gonna be very hard if we don't tackle inequality now when we have the opportunity to see an energy transition that is actually democratized. The energy transition, if we are relying on renewables, there's no central power. It needs to be in every single community. Um, We're going to miss the greatest opportunity to bring us to a new economy and then society that I think most of us are going to benefit. Not the 1%, but the 99% are going to benefit from.
0: Yeah, I totally agree that uh, really this democratization process uh, should be a centerpiece or is it really a core question in in the process of transitioning away from fossil fuels and and a new energy system. And yeah, I'm curious to hear more from you, Femi. Uh, You, of course, also recently have uh, published uh, an article in The Guardian uh, arguing for the nationalization of Shell. and yeah, we just heard Kyla speaking more about the importance of public ownership. So I'm also curious to hear from you a little bit what you think the core arguments for public ownership are and how you envision this uh, or what do you think is central to um, keep in mind in this?
3: There are a couple of things it occurs to me to say. The first is to talk about the importance of what we mean when we say public ownership or what the target of public ownership is. And I think what Carla just said on this topic is is very important, right? We mean democratic public ownership, not just the state kind of assuming the role of shareholders in the quest for profit and control. But the primary contrast that is behind the call for nationalization is between um, two different ways that we could decide what to do with um, fossil fuel resources and the um, lands around them, right? Um, So one way is we could um, govern them by the needs and wants of investors, which is the method of control and governance built into private ownership, or we could not do that. There could be a broader, more publicly driven, um, more ecologically um, sustainable way of thinking about making decisions with respect to those kinds of resources and the politics around. Them. And that second one is, of course, the goal of public ownership. Whether or not we actually get there, I think, is an importantly international question. So so the phrase nationalization is important, but um, leaves a bit unsaid. One of the things that matters is not just whether or not um, resources in a country are nationalized, but what that means from a governance perspective. And so in the case of countries like Nigeria, you might have nationalization of assets followed by joint ventures with privately controlled multinational corporations um, based elsewhere in the world that largely drive how um, the politics and economics of oil works in the country and so that's not what the goal is and so we need to make sure that we're appropriately international and global in our perspective of what it is that we'd have to actually accomplish if we wanted democratic control over these resources.
2: Thanks, Femi and Carla. I think, you know, broadening what we understand about uh, in nationalization is really important uh, to, to taking this project forward and ensuring the sort of democratic and public parts of this are really central. And I'm wondering, Carla, whether you have any examples of industries that have been taken into public ownership in the past where this has worked in, in favor of the public good?
1: Yes, I think. Well, looking back, it's just such the rhetoric that. Um, there's no good example. There's no public ownership. This is all novel, but public ownership, as my colleague Thomas Hannah has written, in the past is as, as traditional as American pie. Uh, it happens over and over again. Every single decade, we can point to examples. Um, of course, it's, I never like to point it out to world wars, but that is a great example when a number several. Uh, organization was brought into public ownership and with a single goal of producing goods, of rationing goods um, that were needed and we couldn't provide to the people. Um, But I was looking more into this broader questions of like the examples today there are for um, public uh, entities for the public good and it's quite difficult not to find and if we go to the lower standard of all which is basically the public the revenue from public organizations go back to public accounts so they are available to the people so if we're just using the uh, financial standards that is just by itself um, a standard of using uh, public enterprise for the public good of course uh we have Many more examples. I've been looking a lot into financial examples, right? Because I think the, fin- the financial sector is one that's been very extractive and one the fossil fuel industry has a lot of hold on. So if you look, for example, there's the Costa Rica National Bank, uh, National Costa Rica Development Bank that basically has a mandate. And and I like the example because it's very democratic as well. They have, a, I think, a board that is, composed by 290 members, and they're all stakeholders of society. They do go to a public process of strategic planning, and the bank has been very successful in just promoting um, community development and uh, supporting small and medium business. Um, in, the, in the UK, for example, there was also uh, a successful start of the nationalization, the Britain's Health Service, that have, that have since been nationalized provide public health and welfare to the British. Um, we also have a lot of examples in the pharma industry. Uh, I do have a colleague that is focused on research and policy developments, focus on pharma. And with the COVID pandemic it's become very clear that public, um, the public pharmaceutical sector is um, actually promoting public good across the country. And that goes for Cuba. I know that people don't like to point to Cuba, but Cuba is a huge uh, pharmaceutical sector uh, success story. We also look, she also pointed to me to other stories. Of basically, insulin was developed by a public lab, something that I never knew of. Uh, is have seen spread privatized, which is why we see huge prices of insulin medication nowadays. And I'm from Brazil, right? So Brazil didn't, we do have public health is not as good uh, as it used to be, but they've been, um, they did nationalize some public labs and retail pharmacies, and now they provide genetics. Uh, we lower price for the most common diseases, um, and it's been free to the people. Uh, if we look into the U.S., uh, I think basically there was many um, airports. Security was nationalized after two thousand and um, September 11, uh, 2001. I was gonna say two thousand eleven, but that's been twenty years this year. Um, and they also provide employment for a lot of people. Um, I think. I've been looking to the energy sector in particular, and even though there is a lot of discrepancies between investor-owned utilities um, and public utilities, when you really compare, even though uh, public utilities CEOs are making millions of compensation, the highest uh, compensation for a public utility. Uh, CEO is still lower than the average compensation of the investor on utilities. So you can also look from an equality perspective. Uh, of course, it's not anywhere close to equality. If you're having uh, employers that uh, CEOs they have been paying 20 times, 25 times more than the lower uh, payer, but that is significantly less than if you're making 40 times more, uh, which happens usually in the private um, industry. So there's many ways to look into the public interest. And there's a lot of potential, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of good examples there, but we need to look into the democratic governance. And I think that is something somewhat new to the world, but there's plenty of examples right there on how to build from.
2: Thanks, Carla. I just wanna uh, offer the word to Femi as well to add uh, examples of public ownership?
3: One, it's its more a kind of um, analysis point than anything else. But um, mm-hmm. one thing I wanted to just underscore about actually the first kind of example that Carla gave is that, um, you know, it's always about what the comparison is. Right. So it's not as though there's any magic solution in public ownership. It's just a kind of better model than the investor-owned alternative. And, and one aspect of the Nigerian historical case that is really um, salient to me is that um, an author, Freinus, in um, Third World Quarterly estimated that um, of the oil revenues of Shell were invested in Ogoniland, um, uh, uh, the Delta region of Nigeria, where a lot of their oil revenue was extracted from. And by comparison, um, uh, that was in the 90s. In the present day, oil revenues are still around the order of 50% of the Nigerian federal government budget, right? So as many problems as there are from Nigeria's kind of experiment with nationalization, it is better than we could expect from the companies left to their own devices with complete kind of political dominion over what to do with things. Thanks, Femi. Um...
2: I think the point about investment is really important, and also I just to return back to what Carla was saying. This pay inequality, I think, between CEOs and sort of line workers, is also really important to consider in the context of public ownership. Um, I think both of you have touched on this point already in a number of ways, but you know, one of the criticisms I think that is leveled at nationalization is that you know three quarters of oil production is. You know, already controlled by state-owned oil companies rather than private companies, and they're not immune to corruption. They're not exactly doing uh, good things uh, for the, for for local communities. Um, and and I think both of you have touched on this idea of it must be paired with democratization. You know, so um, how how can off- nationalization offer solutions in this? Way are there specific things that need to be done to ensure that or that this you know transition is is actually occurs once once reserves are or, and once the industry is nationalized? And so,
3: both of you. Let me, I'll just say something uh, quickly because I'm sure Carla has something more in the direction of an actual answer to this question. (laughs) That was Um,
1: a tough question, I told them.
3: Yeah, it is tough. Um, One thing that I think is worth uh, at least adding to the context of the question is the kind of geopolitics in which this system arose. It was around, uh, I believe, 68, when OPEC started um, requiring more than 51% state ownership of um the oil and gas sectors from its members um this is a, this is the same time period in which much of uh Asia and Africa is um, completing national independence struggles. It is right before the oil shock of seventy three and it's before the kind of uh structural adjustment programs and what I think would be fair to describe as a sort of uh, debt crisis, structural debt crisis in much of the global south. Now that's not gonna give you every country's particular story, but it is going to add a bit to what I think the rationale is for continuing to um, extract in ways that resemble the behavior of investor owned companies. If you um, are reliant for your revenue on this particular kind of extraction, um, and particularly if you have high levels of debt burdens, um, there's a way that that can kind of crowd out political solutions. Um, And the explanation for that has more to do with the overall global situation than any particular narrow thing we could say about uh, the structure of firms or the nature of ownership in a particular country. So I'll just say that for context. I know it doesn't answer the question.
1: Yeah, and I'm not sure if I can fully answer, but one of the things that pop into my mind in first place is that. If we are nationalizing, if there's uh, enough uh, will to do so, we are not doing to continue extraction. So there needs to be safeguards and a clear mandate that we are doing this to wind down, to provide a just transition, because we're going to use the resources we need to for the just transition and not just to perpetuate the fossil fuel dependent economy we have now right now. So there's a different mandate of, uh, that enables corruption in some level. In Brazil, for example, is just making sure the contracts are paying um, executives more than they're doing to the family and then kind of rip it off the profits for themselves. Uh, So if you don't have, if you're actually detaching um, pri- uh, financial interests out of fossil fuels because you you are winding down. You do have a plan, almost like a bankruptcy. How we are resolving these companies, if some of them can transform, is a question. But I, I know that um, those more um, in the field know that the transition of is just turning like a cold store into an ice cream shop. You need totally different. Sc- um skills totally different for structures so uh not saying that we need to transition them but we if we are going to resolve them um you kind of do a little you're less tempting to follow the corruption trap hopefully Uh, but as family was mentioning i think corruption goes is perpetuated by the fossil fuel industry but goes beyond not something that nationalizing one company or one sector is gonna solve. Although it can be a strategic step if we go in the right direction. And I think it all goes back to like extraction, right? Corruption is just one of the uh, symptoms of uh, this extractive mode that we use for natural resource and labor and people uh, in benefit of the few. So if you start dismantling some of the sectors there the core of extraction, our extractive economy—you can start seeing a pathway to deal with uh, democracy, with um, equality, with social justice. Um, but it's a long way; it's not going to be solved by one um, one sector or one nationalization. But the more we can at least envision how democratic governance for the public good um, can be, and people realize it's just not a Daydream is happening all across the world. We are just not leveraging and reaching the full potential. I think people are gonna start to really question the whole system and how it's been corruption. That we fall into the corruption trap. But yeah, long ways to go.
2: Yeah, thanks for positioning. I think nationalization. I think not as a silver bullet. Both of you come 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 back to this, but you know. Something to open space up to change these larger dynamics, or at least, yeah, go part way. I think that's definitely an important aspect to keep in mind. Um, I want to shift a little bit more towards uh, the climate aspects of things and ask Carla. You know, do you think we can meet the the Paris climate targets of one and a half degrees Celsius warming? I'm you know, with a nationalization strategy, you know, taking into consideration, of course, that one and a half degrees Celsius is still disastrous for a number of communities.
1: I think, and I think we're running out of time and each year is getting, it's been more challenging, but yes, uh, the man reached the moon within 80 years or whatever was, how long U.S. was, was able to send a man to the moon. Uh, If you look into this history of World Wars, we also reach uh, really high goals within matters of a couple of years. So, yes, it's just a matter. And I think something that I forgot to mention, but Femi mentioned uh, a little bit in one of his answers. The question is planning. We need a plan right now. We don't have a plan. We have these scatters policies that if you put them together, they're either pushing these companies into bankruptcy and letting them decide what gets tracked for what or just pushing back in, um, on any successful regulatory successful we have. So right now, we just need the government to take the planning role that is that belongs to the government, doesn't belong to companies. Uh, Femi wrote in The Guardian, right? Right now, they are trying to reach the position of carbon management companies. For-profit companies, they don't manage natural sources. I don't know one example that they were able to successfully manage and we are facing like the greatest challenge uh, in the environment that we have ever seen. So uh, it's time for the government to be hands on and put a plan and democratize that plan, meaning like you have a plan, you have a goal where we want to reach, but what resources get extracted for what reasons is for communities uh, and those most impacted to decide. Um, so, yeah. But yes, we can reach, it's going to be challenging, but. Uh, every every progress is one less climate catastrophe that we're gonna see right now and in the future. So even if we cannot reach 1.5, we need to reach 1.6 as fast as we can.
0: Yeah, thank you, Carla. Um, another discussion point I often have uh, with my friends, especially those who study economics is uh, the point. <laughs> Uh, when I talk about nationalization, they say it's really costly. So uh, I'm curious to hear a little bit from you what you think about this and maybe whether you have some um, some numbers that your research has shown how much it might cost. But also this question, and, yeah, and I'm also wondering whether you can situate these costs maybe in comparison to the subsidies for the fossil fuel industry is already receiving at the moment
1: yeah i don't have the top comparison numbers in my head but i also recently saw the headline in the guardian right like globally the fossil fuel industry receives like a 11 minute 11 million a minute in subsidies or something like that And in each way, there's no number that you can put that historically or every year that um, it will make sense to continue this path. And then regulatory fighting to wind them or make them comply to a climate plan in first place and look at and look uh, and fight against lobbying. Uh, My research in particular, uh, when I, I mentioned I. I did a lot of research on the market, uh, on the financial market route. That would mean like the Fed going, basically buying stocks. Um, when we started the research, the top 25 um, oil and gas companies in the United States, um, if you go 100% of the market value, it would be like $1.15 trillion. Uh, Last year, when the prices dropped, and that was a huge window of opportunity to to actually Move forward with public equity, the price of the whole fossil fuel industry sector was close to $700 billion, which is like mm-hmm. a significant decline um, when we started. And that we are talking about 100% of the market value. If the, we were to take 51% of the ownership just to get control over decision making, that could cut in half um, that price. So, like close to Three hundred and fifty billion dollars. I think that is like a bargain for our future, and considering that we are now close to close the loopholes, especially in the U.S. regarding subsidies. Uh, and it's not only subsidies. We I've been looking a lot also in like uh, abandoned orphan wells, and we don't have a number of orphan wells. And basically, this is all on taxpayers uh, right now. So we need to kind of stop all of that together. And last year there was a bailout, right? Um, I don't have the number on top of my hair, but there's the bailout watch um, that had been tracking that number. And fossil fuel companies were able to get money on rescue plans for the COVID pandemic and treat programs, not only the corporate, but they also, some of them got into the PPP money, which is basically mainstream money. uh, And they, at the same time also laid off employer, employees, which was the whole purpose of the PPP money. So I think I will come back to that number, hopefully when you guys for the podcast, but um, I think in comparison historically, and even each every year, uh, billions of dollars in taxpayer money is is not in compare. And with pump. Like over a trillion dollars out of nowhere in two thousand and eight, just to save financial markets, and I think we could do the same, especially in developed countries, with whether it's like monetary sovereignty from central banks. We could do the same and regain our power. and i I must say, like, just to add one thing, when people ask me this question, there's a huge question, why we need to pay polluters, right? And I think it can be a strategic way of thinking that we are not paying polluters. if you think about pension fund and retirement funds. What we are trying to do is also stabilize the financial system. And there's a lot of um, workers, which money is is definitely, it is attached to the fossil fuel industry. So if we go the financial market route, can we be creative? Can we adopt something like bankruptcy that there's first creditors who get the money? So if we go for 51% ownership, we go for mainstream investors. We go for our pension and retirement funds to stabilize those funds. Don't let them take the hit of the just transition. And speculative investors might never get the money. They are the 49%. There's going to be kind of attached to us in our wind down plan. And you take the hit that you take the hit. So there, I think there's creative ways um, to to go through this routes and actually address a lot of the Polaris uh questions around uh, nationalization and compensation of, of fossil fuel investors. And we need to hold them accountable, put them in jail too. Like nationalization is not blocking anyone that did harm and all that was doing harm for decades from going to jail. It's actually in my view is a complementary and like they, are, they go hand in hand.
0: Mm. Yeah, maybe building on, on this response, I think there for many people, it's a bit of a mysterious way where mm, government money appears from where it comes from. And I know in your research, you, you mentioned the potential, talk about the potential of quantitative easing um, and what impact it has in terms for taxpayers. Could you maybe elaborate very briefly? what quantitative easing entails and what potential it has in, in, yeah, in nationalizing the fossil fuel industry.
1: Oh, that is a can, can of worms. Uh, but quantitative easing is basically the idea that um, central banks, especially in developed countries, do have this monetary power of creating money out of thin air. I know that we think about creation of money as printing money or attached to gold that That doesn't exist for now many decades. Um, it's just a stroke on a computer. you create a debt on the federal written uh, the us states and the Federal Reserve balance sheet, and you credit someone else with that money. It's never printed um, and the and the Federal Reserve in the United States have the power to also delete that debt, let it go away. Uh, it's not a tax to taxpayer money um, most of the time. Uh, it doesn't follow a balance sheet like Congress and other legislators like to make sense. Of course, it, into, it might reach into issues of inflation and it needs to be attached to resources, right? We need to have labor and resources uh, able to back up that uh, creation of money. Uh, but as we are seeing in the United States now, employment is high, but inflation is still uh, not in anywhere close to what is considered high inflation. Is actually considered right now a, a healthy inflation. So it's basically we do have the money. Uh, money is a fiction, in case people haven't figured out just as much, much as as politics. Uh, so if we 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 need to create money to get out of the climate crisis. We do have the money, and just just look military, just look like Trump's proposal of a wall, uh, the billion coin presidential coin those are all fiction, and they've been used in the past to just justify expenditures for the will of who is in power at a time. Uh, that is not to say that all countries could do that. um I think developing countries, such as Brazil, do have more limits uh, in international debt. So that is a little, I don't think, fully translate. But yes, Netherlands, European Central Bank, um, the United States, Canada, they, they could all do so if mm. if they wanted.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for this. I think it's really important when we... Yeah, open up these discussions about what potential pathways are to a future beyond Shell is also to really debunk maybe some of the m- myths and shed some light on these economic uh, mysteries uh, or like, yeah, that are mysteries for many of us that don't necessarily study economics. Um, yeah, I would like to shift gear a little bit and and talk a bit more about Shell uh, specifically. Uh, since our podcast is really based on this premise uh, that we need to dismantle Shell. Uh, We cannot build a just future uh, with Royal Dutch Shell in it. So I'm curious to hear uh, from either one of you. uh, Do you think we can uh, end Shell by nationalizing it?
3: I think we probably can't end Shell without nationalizing. Um, I'm not sure you know i'm not sure if we would be successful in all the things that we would need to be successful in to write a company that large out of existence but um that's how i feel about most aspects of the climate crisis right you know it's there's a perspective that you take when you're just trying to predict the future when you're when you're betting maybe um but then there's a perspective you take when you're trying to do things. Um, so I think it's I think it's the right kind of goal. Um, I think nationalization would help that go along. Um, but beyond that, it's hard to say. yeah,
0: I'm curious. I know Carla, your research Focused more in the u s uh context, but yeah, I'm wondering whether either one of you is feels comfortable to yeah do a little thought experiment and yeah and maybe say out loud how you think a nationalization process of shell could look like or would look like who who would facilitate it, and what are other important institutions that would play a role in it.
1: I think it all depends what route we are taking. If I was just to translate the financial market route, it would be probably the Netherlands, maybe the UK, as my understand there's a huge shell subsidy that is headquartered there. Um basically, you're trying to look at the country um, where the high decision making uh, is happening, where the planning for the future of the organization is happening and that country should be in charge of winding down. I know that would be having implications beyond the country and workers uh, beyond the countries. As Femi mentioned, Nigeria is a huge place. Um, Oddly enough, Shell, I know that a lot of people think Shell is the the transition, but Shell was the only one to be in an auction that happened last week in Brazil for offshore drilling. so now they have formal leases in Brazil is my understanding. Uh, so there will be huge implications in Brazil as well. But uh, it needs to be a planning decision, the higher level. So uh, whoever and if you take the market rules, it could be. Um, so that is where I get tricked. I don't know if it's the European Central Bank, but I, I believe the Netherlands Central Bank will be the one in charging of printing money. Um, for that. And it all depends on also legally what is the the translation of eminent domain to the Netherlands. But I think it will be needed to be the by the government whether organizations headquarters and decision making powers are being made. Thanks, Carla.
2: Um, I want to move towards the more justice related questions that nationalization brings up both, I think, locally, but also globally, given that Shell and most fossil fuel companies, or large ones in any case, are multinationals, right? Um, so, to, both of you have mentioned sort of a just transition, just, yeah, I think, in passing. And I'm curious, perhaps we can start with you, Femi. You know, do you so? You, do you see nationalize, nationalizing Shell or other fossil fuel companies, Towards a managed wind down, as a path to supporting a just recovery, what are the what are the ways that it you know that it can support such a transition in particularly with a justice lens
3: on? So what a private corporation is is a way of organizing an entire sphere of economic life in which um, most people who are affected by the operations are outside of power. So that's going to include the workers who are below the management class, um, maybe after the shareholder revolution it even includes the managers, but uh, we can leave that aside for a second. It certainly includes the workers, um, includes people um, in communities that are nearby um whatever the operations of the company are. And it takes all that aspect of social life and it says the governing principle for this part of social life is going to be shareholder value and/or profit. Right. So so benefits for a small group of people based on interactions of a much larger group of people. From that perspective, nationalizing um, these sectors of the economy is a pretty central role, I I think, in a just transition. It's not about just the decision-making power, though that in and of itself is important, but it's actually about socializing the benefits and burdens of the kind of activity that we're doing in a given sector, right? What a corporation is, is the privatization of those benefits um, and the socialization of the burdens. So oil is dumped or spilled in the Niger Delta so that portfolios in the Netherlands can show a healthy rate of return. There's no just transition, in my mind, where that is still an organizing feature of major aspects of economic life, certainly not the aspects of economic life that are responsible for the climate crisis.
2: Thanks, Femi. Carla, do you have anything to add to that?
1: No, I think that goes to the heart and I think it shows, yeah, if you look even those that are greenwashing and saying they have a transition energy transition plan, there's just you don't see the word workers or communities anywhere. So if you really go just to the surface level of these questions where where they take into consideration those that have put their lives into these companies, um, and there's no like United States their route for just transitions, bankruptcy. Where they manage judges to just ditch their environmental and labor responsibilities, they're in the legislation, so they're exactly in the opposite direction of a just transition. But yeah, I think Femi' uh, answer goes actually to the root of this question uh, more than just a superficial level.
2: Yeah, I wanna I wanna build on that because Femi, you have written and spoken about what you term climate colonialism. So could you tell us a little bit more about this idea and what the role of corporations like Shell is in climate colonialism?
3: So by climate colonialism, um, I really just mean a new kind of political division and social organization based on climate politics. So the ability to govern how the risks and impacts of climate crisis get distributed are based on these ordinary old definitions of power. It's just a new significance they take on as the climate crisis accelerates. Um, So it's more or less the same idea that people have been talking about under the term climate apartheid, right? Maybe you could apply the term climate apartheid when we're thinking about which individuals bear the most burdens based on climate crisis or maybe which families or communities within a country. But once we look across the world, once we start looking at a higher level of scale where we might be comparing um nation states to each other or we might be comparing indigenous nations to the settler communities around them then the term climate colonialism seems to stick a little more in my head but the basic idea is that these kinds of relationships between stronger and weaker countries richer and poorer countries are increasingly going to take on qualitative dimensions of the climate crisis so which countries will be securing their food security and energy security and water security at the expense of which other countries will start to take on these. Um, will start to respond to these older hierarchies of power.
2: Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind um this idea that these colonial legacies aren't don't have not gone away right they they continue to exist um in the context of current our current political economy um so given this you know one of the arguments for public ownership is that it provides more democratic governance, as both of you have talked about a lot, and it is driven by the public will as opposed to uh, for private profit. And I'm wondering, Femi, you know how do we re- reckon with these relationships between nation states in Europe? that have these colonial histories of extracting from countries like Nigeria, uh, which is a British colony, um, like many other countries um, in the global South. Um, How do we, how how does nationalization fit into this? If if the Netherlands or another European country nationalizes uh, Shell or another fossil fuel company, you know, what, um is is it just reproducing these power dynamics between um in terms of empire
3: depends on what gets done with the nationalization this goes back to carla's early point right if it's not made clear from the outset and followed through upon that the point of nationalization is um draw down the point of natural nationalization is to eventually end the fossil fuel industry um and if it, that isn't how people act then nationalization could well um fit into climate colonialism rather than um serve as a bulwark against it i think that's why there needs to be a certain kind of holism Um, a holistic appraisal of how all of these function in the context of a larger politics, right? All of these are pieces of a larger puzzle um, and are good or bad based on how they fit into the whole context. So... The just transition aspect of nationalization as the as the point of nationalization um, as a kind of governing principle of nationalization is not a detachable part. These are things that we have to win in tandem. But I don't think this is a special risk of nationalization as a policy. This is a risk of democracy, right the point of democracy on my view is something like the political ideal of self-determination. What that means is that you're in charge. What that means is that you, the people, are responsible. And as soon as we give up a kind of idealized or romantic notion of what the people are, any group of people, whether they're In the Netherlands or Nigeria or the United States, then I think we give up a romantic notion of what democracy would mean. It's not the end of politics. It's not the end of conflict. It's not the guarantor of good outcomes. It just moves us from a political system in which we have guaranteed bad outcomes, right? We have guaranteed outcomes in the service of a very small, well positioned global elite to a situation where more people's views become relevant, right? More people's potential successes and failures politically, morally, ethically become relevant. Um, It's a different and better point of struggle, but it is a point of struggle and that will Never cease to be a feature of democratic politics, of genuinely democratic politics
2: yeah, and I'm wondering um, whether through nationalization or you know another vehicle, what you think ways are to or ideas are to put the voice of people. In Ogoni land, in the Nitro Delta region, you know, th- that their voices are on an equal level playing field with people in uh, in the Netherlands or in Groningen, which is a, a place where there's a gas field and Shell is extracting gas there as well. So it's not that, you know, people in the Netherlands are also not totally immune to the consequences of of, of Shell's extraction. It's just a totally Different level of of uh, of of extraction and violence that's going on in places like the the Niger Delta region. I just I'm just wondering, is there a scope for global democracy to really um, be able to push this through where everybody's voices get heard? I
3: think there there has to be. Um, and I think one of the things we should be thinking about, or maybe the way we should be thinking about it is a kind of political ecology or political field of power rather than um, any particular institution um, as a kind of guarantor of that sort of voice. right? So it seems to me that there's an important national level question, important state level question about the um level of democracy in state control of resources but there's an apparent there's an important local level question about um the level of power of particular communities um particularly those who are um located near sites of extraction and the approach to supply chain justice if we want to describe it in that way even though eventually we want these supply chains to dry up and wither right Or at least some of them um but you know that approach looks more like the kind of approach where the focal variables are things like union density um and local level community control rather than national-level political decision-making bodies.
0: Yeah, thank you, Femi. We already mentioned that also um, soon you're going to release a book called Reconsidering Reparations, where you talk about a politics of reparations that is rooted more in the future rather than in the present and the past, given the challenges we face with the climate disruption. So I'm wondering, do you see scope for reparations and distributive justice in nationalizing and, and phase-out? What would this look like to you?
3: I definitely see scope for reparations in these discussions. I think these discussions are the stuff of climate reparations. Right? Uh, my view of uh, reparations, which is not a novel view, um, but um, I've just started calling it the constructive view, um, is that we should be building a world order that would include things like a new international economic order, which is a very old idea, decades old idea. Um, but the players and allocations of power and distributions of power in internationally should be fundamentally reconfigured. So that approach to what reparations is, um, especially in the era of climate crisis, would put nationalization as a part of a just transition, high up on the list of goals and targets. But I think the questions from there are maybe more straightforwardly redistributive, right? If the Netherlands inherits the assets of, Royal Dutch Shell. Do all those go to social, solving social problems in the Netherlands, or does a substantial portion of them go to solving social problems in Ogoniland, which are part and parcel of the explanation of why the nation would inherit these assets in the first place? Right. Those are the points of operation, of policy, of action, where um, things are more straightforwardly in the orbit of reparations. What do we do with these resources that we've nationalized? Where do they go? If they all stay in the country that now um, has taken them from the corporation, then that seems like a failure from a reparations perspective.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree that reparations in future should uh, play a really central role considering what um yeah front com- communities have endured over the past um decades or centuries even. Um I think another important core group that you've already spoke about are the workers um in in the just transition. So I'm I'm curious. I know Carla, you've written in your work more about Um, how nationalization could support workers in the transition to a democratic, regenerative economy. And I
1: was wondering if you could expand uh, more on this thought. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think when winding down, when we talk about winding down, uh, there's one of the ways that we could support this transition Does really clear the political pathway for us to have a meaningful conversation of what a transition means. Um, If we go into the company level, basically is creating a plan, not only for winding down natural resources, but a plan for what's next to workers. And that includes, um, are we training them to be in a new sector. Um, Are we giving them five years of training so they can transition away from the industry? We are giving a timeline, like you're not getting fired tomorrow as been happening, with all this reassessment of where the world state is and laid off last minute. We are giving a plan on when they're gonna be transitioning out with training and also a social security net, what, what it means, do we need to continue paying them for a couple of years, three years, five years, until they're able to be placed in a new market? Um, and are we securing their retirement funds right now? What has been happening when some of these companies go bankrupt, basically the funds of those workers are diminished because they become lower in the creditors uh, years of a bankruptcy procedure so i would just securing the funds uh in first place so they can have a retirement a lot of these workers uh in within five to ten years are going to be retiring in first place so there's a there's like different type of workers the one that's gonna need to go into a new field they're gonna be ones they're gonna be retiring anyway if we're just securing their retirement or giving them a clear path. And I think that is part of the wind down in first place. Um, Yeah, so I think it's just bringing them back to the planning process and not having them in the consequences of an unplanned transition that is happening uh, one way or another, very disorganized and right now not securing any climate safety, but uh, yeah, it's just. Putting them into consideration first and foremost, uh, along with impact communities and other frontline communities, as Pamela mentioned. Thanks,
2: Carla. I want to take us in the direction of a wrap up. So, you know, we ask all of our guests at the end, you know, what do you think is necessary to get to a future beyond Shell? And, you know, is nationalization or this strategy that we're talking about today? The main tool, um, what are other, uh, what is another tool that you think is important in this, in this, uh, fight, I suppose. Um, and this is for
1: both of you. Can jump off a little bit while Femi's, uh, but yeah, definitely not the, the only two, um. In my view is a main tool just to break through, like we're in a virtual cycle. We cannot figure out why we cannot pass anything that moves us beyond shell uh, regulatory uh, wise. So it is a political breakthrough It's also a way to stabilize and gain time. So for me it's a main tool, but main in the sense that it needs to go right away. Uh, So we can actually start planning the transition, but not in the sense that it's even the most important. I think like um, I support all the efforts from supply side folks here. Regulatory banning license is totally is a strategy is a way for nationalization. If we continue allowing them to grow, we are just uh, moving further and further away from any political will or executive will to nationalize. So there's a lot of other tools that play a crucial strategy role, but also how to secure the transition government is not going to just water down uh, a nationalization plan that is being implemented. Uh, So it's a platform, like really, like we need a climate policy platform. And I think when I focus my research on nationalizations, why public ownership not being debated as one of the crucial ways for us to get there. And uh, this is the work I've been doing. Like, this is a tool that needs to be part of the platform. It's not the only tool by any means. It's not a panacea. (laughs) Like, as we've been talking, it's difficult. We are talking about democratic public ownership, not only public ownership. So it's another level of challenge in itself, but why is not part of the conversation? And I, I truly cannot understand why, because Femi mentioned and I'm stealing. I just don't see how we're going to deal with the climate tra- crisis without public ownership of these companies in first place.
3: Public property. You're not stealing it. <laughs> it's under democratic ownership. Um, so I think. I totally agree with Carla. I think it's a necessary tool. Um, I, I Yeah, I, I think that's what I'm inclined to say, which is just to say that if investors are in control of what happens with these resources, um, if investment logic is in control of what happens with these resources, even if it's not necessarily private investors, we can just calculate mathematically what they're going to do, right? If the basis is to um, maximize profits or return to shareholders, we just know which strategies will do that. That is for them to delay the energy transition, and if not (laughs) entirely prevent the energy transition, Um, and, even if the energy transition is presumed to happen um, to accelerate production before the energy transition in order to minimize stranded assets and maximize profits. These are just when we are describing what it is for um, an industry to be run for profit, we are describing the conditions on which those calculations decide what happens in those sectors. So unless and until we challenge that, I don't see any way of meeting even the least conservative temperature targets. And like Carla, I'm extremely confused as to why this isn't the mainstream part of conversation. We should be debating how to do this, not whether
2: Thank you both so much, uh, Femi and Carla. I think we've learned a lot about the about nationalisation of the fossil fuel industry, its uh, implications in terms of the climate uh, 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 climate crisis, but also in terms of democratising um, and fighting some of these uh, uh, colonial and other power dynamics that to to achieve a, a more just future. In any case, thank you so much. To our listeners, if you like the show, please follow and like us on your podcast platform of choice. You can learn more about a future beyond shell at futurebeyondshell.org. And for more information on our guests and the concept of nationalizing the fossil fuel industry, check out our show notes.